On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Simon, and Simon was raised by an emotionally stunted narcissistic father. It's a story of fear, identity issues, low self-everything, and family adoption secrets. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. This is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And now, before we get to our episode with Simon, I first want to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, a reminder, if you have not left us a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBox, etc., etc., please leave us a five-star written review as it helps out the show a lot when it comes to rankings. Now, if you have not been to our website recently and want to be a part of our show, go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Fill out that guest form and we will go from there. But another way to be on our show is to also go to NarcissistApocalypse.com and to read a letter to your narcissist. On the side of the page, there's a floating button that says Send Voicemail. Click on that button. It records up to five minutes. You press it twice, records up to ten. Read your letter to your narcissist, but if you don't want to do it yourself, you want to send it to me or my old pal Melissa to read, send it to NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and put letters to my narcissist in the subject line. And what else do we have here? Other things on our site. We are offering high-conflict parenting courses that can be found at NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. Yes, we have partnered with Online Parenting, and many of the courses we are offering were created by Bill Eddy. And if you've listened to our episode last year with divorce lawyer named Helen, you'll know that Bill Eddy is an expert in dealing with these individuals in court, and now he's helped create many parenting courses to help you through divorce and to help support your children too. These courses are the most widely recognized courses by family courts across the country. So if you want to support the show and are looking for guidance, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. And our Patreon, everyone, if you want to support the show, come become, uh, come become, become a member of our Patreon. Yes, we have a Patreon where you can hear episodes that never made it to air, episodes with former guests, much more. And what is that much more? We now have virtual support groups every Wednesday and Saturday. It's a good group of people on there. Hello to everyone who is there on Saturday night. And we also have our own little forum board on there as well, so people can communicate with each other. That's at patreon.com slash NarcissistApocalypse if you want to support this show. And that's pretty much it. This episode with Simon is a really interesting episode. You know, we discussed a lot of different things here, including nature versus nurture. 
you'll find out a lot about the adopted sibling uh, that he finds out uh, he has when he's about 42 years old. There's a lot um, kind of to unpack here. It's an emotional episode. It's uh, a lot of learning uh, that you can uh, get through this one as well. I really just want to thank Simon for being part of it. Also, at the beginning, I tried to explain everything uh, in my recording with Simon, and it didn't really go very well. It just became more confusing because there's a lot of players in the story. I've re-recorded it after the fact on on my end, uh, so you'll hear that. There might be a sound difference when that happens, uh, and then the rest of the show will continue. So now that's just my little bit of warning of my many warnings that I usually have before, and that is it. So everyone... Without further ado, here is my episode with Simon. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Simon. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Brandon. How are you? I'm doing well, and we talked a couple weeks ago, and now we are back here. And we had to re-record this part because I made the story more confusing than it really was. So just to explain to everyone the players that we have in this story before we go forward, we have uh, Simon, we have his mother and his father, and then Simon has three sisters. There is one that is 16 years older than him, and that is his half-sister who's been in his life the whole time. And then you have one sister who is, I think it is seven years older than him. And that person is uh, his full sister. However, she is was adopted out of the family. And then you have a sister that is six years older than him, which is also his full sister that lived with him his whole life. And you'll find out within this story that they all didn't find, they all didn't find out that they had this adopted sister or who was adopted out until uh, three years ago. So now that that is explained, you'll probably hear some conversation later on as if the, uh, the mess up did happen. But anyway, without uh, further ado and getting in your way here, uh, here is the rest of the story. Okay. So um, my father and my father who is the narcissist in this uh, story um grew up in a very uh, uh an abusive family home and he has got three two sisters and three brothers all of which uh suffered um a lot of physical abuse at home and uh, there was also some uh sexual abuse as well parental abuse and uh they my father left home i think when he was 14 years old and uh went out to live his life uh, basically getting various jobs he worked as a lorry driver for many years and he was a lorry driver's mate for uh the first couple of years that he had left home and he was driving lorries uh, in britain uh, age 15 while the the guy who should should have been driving slept in the back for, um, for us in North America, what is a lorry? Oh, it's a, it's a truck. Okay, okay, thank you. <laughs> like a, an articulated truck, so it's one of the big ones, you know, not a small one, not a, not a van. And he, um, 
yeah, so that's his kind of background. Uh, he, he, they all had a very, very difficult relationship with their father and their mother as well, who was, uh, uh, although the story has changed now over the past kind of 20 or 30 years since she's died, she's um, become more of a kind of, uh, she's been redeemed uh, in the stories of the family, I think, somewhat. Uh, from the person that she was when she was alive and what they all thought of her then. Uh, but he never was redeemed, uh, my dad's father. They all uh, pretty much, I think, the the, the girls uh, didn't have as much animosity towards him and hatred of him than the boys. Uh, but um, it was incredibly dysfunctional. And all in their own ways, my father and his siblings are... Um, pretty out there. They're all, they're all successful. Uh, none of them are. None of them are dead. Uh, they're, you know, considering their background and the stuff that kind of has happened happened to them when they were children. Uh, but they're they're all kind of odd in their own ways. And uh, yeah, but my father is a narcissist and is. Um, Basically, he met my mother after she had um, already been married before to a man who she met when she was 15 years old. And this was in the uh, early 60s. Actually, the I think she met him in 1959. And then um, she, was, she was 15 years old when she met her first husband. Uh, she fell pregnant, which at the time was appalling in Britain. It was an incredibly shameful thing to happen in a kind of working class community that she uh, lived in. Um, so she had the child, not with the blessing of her mum and dad, but they they didn't give the child up for adoption. Um, and my mother uh, was incredibly shamed by it. And her family were also incredibly shamed by this. Um, and my mother uh, tells it that basically she wasn't allowed out of the house for five years after the baby was born uh, because of the shame of it, pushing the pram down the street. Uh, to be seen doing that at her age would have just been awful. And the man that she married was a uh, um, old that uh, she got pregnant by and was forced to marry. Um, basically, was uh, he, he? He turned out to be a, an alcoholic, but he wasn't an alcoholic. He was a heavy drinker then, but later on in his life, he became very addicted to alcohol. Um, uh, but he he left basically after a year. So they she moved out of her mother's house when she was fifteen, sixteen. But, uh, the baby was born when she was sixteen, so the first baby, and uh, and then they lived alone together for a year and then he walked out so she had to go back and live with her mother and father um as i said she would then basically was kept in the house for uh four years four or five years and uh, when the baby was old enough my eldest sister was she was she said i was allowed out she wasn't literally kept in the house that makes it sound like she was locked up but it was a shameful thing. She could go out to work, but she had her life restricted by the shame of this, basically, this event. Anyway, when the baby was uh, about five, she was allowed to go out and live her life again. And she met my father, who uh, 
at a night in some sort of place in in where where she lived and it uh they went away together for what we would call in Britain a dirty weekend and they went to a seaside resort um in the north of England just for two nights to stay and this is bear in mind it's the first person our mother had spent a lot of time with in about five years anyway on that first weekend they went away um she got pregnant again <laughs> so she came home from that event walked still living with her mother and father and uh discovered that she had a child and um uh, you can imagine the shock of it for her mum and dad they were um it was horrifying for for them basically and uh when my dad found out that they were pregnant uh, he he didn't want anything to do with the child um that has come out since but that's not how my mother tells it but uh, oh, we'll we'll get, we'll get to that we'll one we'll get to that yeah. <laughs> so um yeah so she when she was started showing they uh, shipped her off to a it, i don't know what you'd call it but it, it was a, a basically a home for fallen women i suppose but she spent the last so, so there's a, it was a, i assume it's uh or not i assume if i remember correctly mm. it's a place with nuns yes, yes it was it was a religious order of uh nuns and and, and, uh, and, and she's being put there until this blows over pretty much yeah until the, certainly until the baby is born and they can decide what to do with it so that she doesn't have to walk down the street with another pregnant belly, I suppose, would be the reason that they did that. And that she, she could then come back having had the baby and nobody would ever know that she'd been pregnant again. Because at this uh, point for your mom, mm-hmm. what is, is happening is here, she's already felt like she shamed her family once and now here's this second instance where... Uh, they're not married. Yes, they're not married. Uh, and, no chance of that. And at this point, she doesn't want to do any shameful thing again, and she goes yep. and uh, you know into hiding yes. until they can kind of figure it out. And the child that is born is actually the uh, your eldest uh, sister, uh, full sister. But full we sister. will we will talk. Uh, we'll call her your adopted full sister and that's how her adoption yes. came to be yes that's right so she um they uh, that the child was was given up for adoption eventually and went to live um down the road uh, it was um, but we didn't know this of course we didn't know any of this at all um and uh my father disappeared off the scene and he, uh, my mum just went back to her normal life. The baby was gone. My dad wasn't there. But then, um, how many years? Three years later. Please, I mean, if these dates don't work out, it's because I'm forgetting ages and things like that. I'm, I'm sorry, but yeah, three years later it would be. They, and my dad came back, and uh, my my mother was a very attractive uh, woman. Is a a very attractive woman and she was she was very good looking when she was younger and my, my dad a lot less so um she she but he has since told me that she was a uh she was a trophy you know she she would never have got 
any anyone that good looking who wasn't broken essentially a broken human being <laughs> and uh so he saw an opportunity i imagine this is again he didn't say this to me this is what i imagine happened he saw an opportunity he'd been gone for gone for three years he came back and said how about we try and make a go of it and they did they tried to make a go of it and then my other sister was born the sister who is uh six years older than me and they moved in together next to my grandmother my mother's mother uh, in the house literally next door six years older than you or 16 years older than you oh six years six. older than me this six years older than me yeah this one that was born was six years older than me so my dad came back okay after so at this point my mother had the eldest half the adopted child had gone and been adopted out and then they had another child who is my the sister just above me who's six years older than me um and then yeah so he came back uh, she was born, my, the sister just above me, six years old. And then eventually I was born. And um, we lived in absolute kind of, uh, we didn't know that the, the child, this was never, ever spoken about that this child had uh, been adopted out, ever. And uh, three years ago, we discovered um, somebody got in contact with my, the sister just above me, my six-year-old the the sister who's just above me, six years older than me, and she um, had somebody got in contact with her and said, "I think we might be related." And uh, my sister said, uh, uh, "She phoned me and said this person has just got in contact with me on Facebook and said that um, it might be related to her." And I've looked, have a look, have a look at her Facebook profile. I, and she didn't say at that point, "You're my sister." She just said, I think we might be related. And we both went onto Facebook and looked at this woman's profile. And the moment that we opened Facebook, it was obvious that, that she, she was related to us in a very close way because <laughs> she looks identical. She looks absolutely identical to my sister, who's uh, to my full sister. So, my, uh, so before we get to the whole story of meeting your mm. uh, full sister. Let's go into your life with okay. your other sisters and what mm. you kind of had to deal with when it okay. comes to uh, you growing up, you know, mm. with your story, you know, you can yeah. obviously tell a bit of your sister's story as well. Okay. Uh, how did it all kind of begin where you knew that something was off? With my dad? Yeah. Well, so he, from my very earliest memories, was a uh, incredibly unstable uh, person. He um, acted a lot. He would absolutely fly off the handle at the smallest slights. Um, he had to have every single thing um, exactly as he wanted it. Um, otherwise, he he just wouldn't tolerate it. Basically, he would um, he would get angry. He would get um, uh, he, <laughs> irritated, constantly irritated if things weren't exactly as he wanted them to be all the time. Um, he didn't seem to have any compunction at all to uh, make things in any way better for anyone else apart from himself. So. 
he's a, he was a fundamentally selfish person. He um, and when I was very small, I mean, I don't remember a lot. We've kind of, as a family, me and uh, the two sisters that I grew up with were, um, we've attempted to kind of construct uh, a kind of what he was like then. Because, you know, you forget. it's um, That's what the past is, isn't it, as well? It's a kind of patchwork that you constantly kind of attempt to kind of keep together and understand. It's the... But I remember from when I was very young being terrified, I was terrified of him. I was very, very frightened of him. And uh, my primary memories from an early age is of fear and uh, of having my mother pull me away from situations that could potentially, of now, of course, I know, could, but I, could, I could irritate him or uh, I would you know, confront him. And children are. I've got two small children myself, and, and they are just, I mean, sometimes the amount of noise, he cannot stand noise, he can't stand, um, and, and not being the centre of attention. Over the years, I've realised that, that is a huge thing for him, is having children there and no one is looking at him. It's, um, that's just one of the reasons. But another reason is that, of course, children who are noisy distract him from the things that he wants to do he needs the space for himself he doesn't need these children under his feet all the time and um but being being moved away from situations by my mother being taken out of rooms when he's flown off the handle and um shouted or you know screamed that he wants things changed um and uh, particularly that fear came when he used to come home from work because I think he often did jobs that he just he didn't like. And um, he would come home and you just... I remember being frightened of what would happen when he came home because you just didn't know whether he'd had a good day or a bad day. Most of the time he'd had a bad day because he, he would come home and, he, and things had to be exactly correct. And if things weren't exactly correct, then a tiny thing could make him could make him go, you know. And he he was never he was physically violent with my eldest sister, and he was physically violent with me as well. But I wouldn't say that that I had a I was beaten or anything like that. He used to the the vast majority of the time, what I was terrified of was rage absolute rage and he used to scream at me through his teeth so he would grit his teeth and come up incredibly close to my face when I was small and you know scream at you know, just be so angry like a, you know what a gorilla's like when, he's, when it's raging like that and um it's just terrifying me you know just terrified so you're a young child you're dealing yeah. with your dad who is uh, the type of narcissist who, no matter what is going on, needs the attention on mm. him. Yeah. He's one of them that is jealous of the children because he yeah. wants your mom's attention yes. and he demands his, your mom's attention over your mom taking care of you guys. Yes. And when you're dealing with this at a small age, or at a younger age here, what are the first survival techniques in your personality that you start to change 
to make your life easier or are you acting out which then makes your life even harder and before i can before i leave off right there for you to answer you know you have a a sister that is six years older and then you have your sister who is a lot older yeah uh, yep. You know, there uh, maybe I don't know if your oldest, the eldest one, is still in the home. Maybe when you're yeah, five... she she left about eighteen, I think. So she was there for a good for two years. Then she came back for another couple of years. So she was around a lot. You know. So you're you're all getting it. So you're all in in, in the same boat. How yes. are you, how are they caring for you? And do you at least feel the love of them? This is very difficult to say and to kind of talk about really because it's not it, it is for them it's entirely blameless i don't want to apportion any blame or anything like that or paint them to be difficult or you know nasty human beings because both of them are aren't at all we all were in it together and um it didn't separate us growing up in this house at all the opposite happened um we it was so obvious and so difficult that we came together against him and uh, he, we, there was no competing for his affections. There, well, there was a, in the early days. I always said that my dad was the biggest child in the house, and he is. He's like an eight-year-old, and uh, that is his emotional state is is like an like that of a seven or eight-year-old child. And one thing I wanted to kind of point out on doing this is just how you know those aren't just kind of abstract words. He really is like that. You know, it is comical how narcissistic he is and how um, overt his narcissism is and how how just you when you when you see it and you understand what he's doing just it's baff, it's baffling that he he can not he he doesn't see it he has no it, no perception that what he does is wrong because there is something missing inside of him. There's something not there. There's a something that he was never given as a child, or, or you know, this ideal self that he is constantly creating. It happens 24 hours of every day, and it's um, you know. Anyway, that's what I wanted to point out. But for, when I was uh, very small, I think my my father has told me since that. He resented me being born because I was a, I was, it's in a, I've said this to you before, Randon, but it, as a, in a moment of uh, kind of enlightened thought, um, when he was uh, trying to curry my favour, <clears throat> he said, I, I never, I, I resented you. You were a boy. Uh, and when you were born, you were taking, a, a, literally said, you were taking affections away from me. And um, so that must have been difficult for me, I think he said, or something like that. It was difficult for me. You don't know how difficult that is. Just something along those lines, which I just, uh, anyway. But um, he would be aggressive towards me, I imagine, in those times because he said to me, he's always said to me my whole life, you were a weed. You were a weedy child. You were uh, you were a mummy's boy. You were always a mummy's boy. And of course, thinking about it now with kind of some information about who he is as a person, when your male child is born for a narcissist, he would see this as an opportunity to 
you know, me to be another him or for me to uh, just kind of, he could live his life through me in some way. I don't know. He could, he could, I would make him proud or make him proud of himself, uh, of what he's achieved or what he's done. Look what I've done. Look at my lovely son. You know? uh, but I immediately came out and was probably terrified by his rage and retreated from him. And my mother, of course, stepped in and, uh, in his words, coddled me. So I was coddled and um, made soft and uh, by uh, by my mother. So that must have enraged him even more because, in his view, I was being taken away from him and what and. She was restricting access to me and not giving me the opportunity to come and love him, I suppose. But in, in mat- as a matter of fact, that was because I was utterly terrified of him and who he is as a person. Um, but what I my primary things that I remember from that time are, as I say, being taken out of rooms. My mother was, it, <clears throat> I think she was a slightly different person to the person that she is now. She's very much institutionalized into the relationship. They've been married for 50 years. Uh, But at the time, she was a bit more spunky, I suppose. Um, She didn't necessarily stand up for herself. She appeased, constantly, constantly appeased 24 hours a day, Uh, did what he wanted and made him not explode. But she was very kind to me, and uh, she tried to do her best, I suppose, to try and keep me away from him. Um, I remember just being quiet. I used to shut up a lot and uh, not say anything and um, just uh, go out of the room, try not to be in the room when everyone was in there, uh, basically just become as small as possible. And um, my sisters, I think, were more, especially the one that's uh, six years older than me, that just above me, she got the golden child um, treatment more, uh, if anybody did, she did, because she was his first child. Um, She was very capable. She's a very capable person. She's very intelligent. And um, he would have seen a lot more to kind of, of himself, is his, the self that he wants to be in her. Um, So, she, she was a doer. She did lots of. Um, uh, she got a scholarship to a very, very good private school that they put her into when she was uh, eight. Um, she passed all the exams. She studied for a year because they didn't have the money to put her in, but she got a got a scholarship. Um, and you know, she used to do lots of things, and she was active. Uh, but I always call her. I have called her in the past in times of rage. Uh, his little his little brown shirt they both were you know they used to tease me kind of on not necessarily at his best but because maybe he found it funny or it was a fun thing to do so uh, it was um but of course what they were trying to do was get into his good books you know yeah that. And so as you got older, I assume your sister leaves the home. So now you're there by yourself. Yeah. And mm-hmm. at that point, how does the relationship uh, devolve from there? How are you acting? And in that era, 
of, uh, you know, from, I guess, you know, 12 and upwards, mm-hmm. how yeah. are you surviving? I was completely avoidant is how I'm surviving. They used to call me the lurker. So I used to come to the doors and just peek around the door, see the people in the room, check it out, what was happening. And I just used to kind of slowly move move away. I hated spending any time with groups. Um, as with my father was involved, certainly I couldn't sit in a room with him. I, I still can't sit in a room with him. I, I find it in, absolutely intolerable. Um, but it was when I was 11 years old. So my dad quit his job. Um, when he was, when I was uh, about nine, and he decided to sell to, uh, we had a quite a big garden at the time, and he decided to uh, make our garden uh, one-tenth of the size and to build a house in the garden. That was his dream. That's what he was going to do, and my mother desperately didn't want him to do it, <laughs> but he did it anyway, of course. So at that time, he was going through something was going on. I think he probably had a breakdown. I remember him in the um, I remember him in the in the shed, uh, and he he got into making lattice work chairs, and he would work with wicker and <laughs> make these kind of ornate chairs. And he was I remember him. There was a, about a period of a year where he was utterly off the rails and very, very, very angry all the time. And they would scream and scream at each other. And I think at that time he was, uh, I I had lots and lots of problems in school at the time. And uh, I remember walking around the playground and being completely, I used with a mantra in my head, poor dad, poor dad, poor dad, poor dad, poor dad. And I used to think that he was going to, something appalling was going to happen because he was essentially mad living in the house with somebody who was going mad at the time. Um, and I was walking around in circles with this mantra going around in my head and and I couldn't get it out of my head. It was an hour, about an hour. I was on the playground just going around and around in circles and something incredibly odd was happening to me then I don't know what it was but it was I was very very fearful and um you know uh it was it was it was hard but when I was older um so he built this house in the garden and uh my mother left for seven weeks and took me away with her on holiday for seven for like this huge extended break where she had to get out of the house and leave him at the time he uh, this is just after my birthday where he bought me a cat for my birthday and um he bought me. They bought me a cat because they know I wanted a cat because they thought I was a sensitive child and would like that. And then they, um, I loved it. Uh, and then a week after we got the cat, my mother grabbed me and we left the home for seven weeks. This was the time I think when my dad was sectioning up the garden in order to plan out this house that he was going to build in the garden. He put the foundations down when she was away. And when I got home, he got rid of the cat. So they bought they bought me this they bought me a, a a cat for my birthday and then when I got back he just got rid of it and um, that was it you know he didn't even say sorry it was just the cat was in the way I couldn't feed it so I got rid of the cat and that was my birthday present and I was looking forward to seven seven weeks of seeing that cat uh, but that that sounds small uh, but it's one of a thousand things that was. Um, that's an abnormal thing to do. That's not a normal thing to do in, in a house. And, but over the years, I've, I've attempted to kind of say, 
to normalize this behavior in every which way I can. And I've always thought that everybody had odd relationships with their parents. Everybody hates their parents a bit. Everybody has parents that, you know, when people say that they love you, they don't really kind of, they're just kind of saying it, aren't they? They're, they're saying it because it's the thing that you've got to say or whatever. And over the years, I've kind of realized that that's not true at all. You know, people are genuine. Another thing my dad always says is 95% of people don't know fuck all. That's one of his sayings. Everybody in the world is thick, which is obviously his way of saying everybody in the world is stupid apart from me. I'm the person that's intelligent. I'm the person that has, that knows everything. Uh, but anyway, so the house was built and, uh, and then we moved again one more time. And that was in my final year of, I don't know what you call it over there. I was 11. So it's before you go to middle school or senior school. We'd call it senior school. And um, he decided after he built and sold the house in the garden that we were going to move to Wales, which is in rural Wales, so the middle of nowhere in Wales. That was his dream. That's what he wanted to do. And he got that in his mind. My mother said no, she didn't want to go. So he took me. And we moved to Wales, me and him. He just took me and we went, just the two of us, when I was 11. And were, and you, were you scared to death when that happened? No, because as I said, I was, I, I was very good at avoiding him. Mm -hmm. And I think I had a – this is another odd thing about my relationship with him and another odd thing about – which is just abnormal, you know, in, in, in a family context is that I hated him. You know, from the from a very very early age, I hated him. I thought he he was a monster. I thought he was a blowhard. I thought he talked shit all the time. I I thought that he didn't know what he was talking about, and you know, he gave me. I don't think I ever sought his approval. I don't think that ever really. I mean, subconsciously, I must have done in some ways. But it wasn't some. I, I just I hated him from a very very early age. Like you like you would a stepfather, I suppose. He was horrible to you. I bet he was my my proper father or my actual father. You know, stepfather's proper father. But you know. So and he sorry. Oh, sorry so, yeah. so here you are, this eleven year old mm, yeah. kid mm -hmm. who is in some ways a lot smarter than other kids because you know you've seen all these things and you're surviving every day where some kids don't have to deal with mm. any of that and you've altered your behavior and yeah. you are quiet you make yourself mm. small you're trying yeah. not to be seen mm -hmm. and those things are going to affect you later on in life which is going to make your life more difficult Mm. In many instances. So when you go, yeah, with, yeah. When you go with your dad here, you mm -hmm. know, who are you as this child that's going? Do you have any identity at all, like, or interests? Or are you just like, no. you know, is, it, is it hard for you to make friends? I had, I've always had one friend. I've always found it very, very difficult being in groups. I, found, I find group dynamics very, very hard. I find the kind of hierarchy of... Um, even friendly groups I find quite difficult. Uh, I think my upbringing has made me a very cynical person. It's also made me very, as a positive, I'm, I think, very good at spotting people that are talking shit 
and people who are um, kind of had narcissistic traits. Certainly, I think that is. I think that's quite common. I can see uh, self-aggrandizement. People that kind of are giving little clues, which they think aren't noticeable about how great they are, but are noticeable. I can see them. I think I've got a very good radar for um, for for hunting out or fight of seeing people who but anyway i'm not good in groups uh so yes i was very isolated and in the last year of my junior school so when i was 10 uh, i didn't have any friends at all uh, my friend my one friend who was a year older than me left and i spent a whole year with no friends in junior school um and i was pretty adrift at that time uh it was difficult um but I kind of, I got through it. I was, I think I was a weird kid. Um, I, I, very, very kind of self-conscious. I went through a period of, of being very paranoid walking down the street and thinking people were looking at me. And I was, I was, you know, when I was uh, that sort of age, um, I was, um, I was fundamentally probably very, very unhappy. And uh, didn't know. I didn't know who I was. I never. I never have known who who, who I am as a person, and I've never had any real uh, interests. I've never really um, been able to choose one thing and go down one path, uh, because all paths look the same, really, to me. And I think that's to do with self worth. Uh, a couple of things going on. I think my subconscious says if you've chosen to do that, that's not the right thing to do. Um, I think also uh, there's my dad's voice there. Anything that he didn't understand, he would say was shit, was worthless or useless, and look at that idiot doing that thing. Why the fuck is he doing that? He would say <laughs> literally things like that um, because he didn't understand or he didn't know what, what would motivate somebody to do just the most, I mean, just the most stupid things. I want to also say something about at that time when I was in junior school, uh, when I was from the age of, I've also got ADHD, as I said earlier. So being born and having that extra kind of uh, problem, you know, uh, I have a problem with concentration and I've got a problem with, um, I've always thought that my problem with motivation was ADHD related, but recently I've kind of thought that no, it isn't. It's, it's, it's something else going on there. Uh, but um, it must have been, very difficult for me to be i must have been a quite a loud child when i was when i was very much younger and full of energy and full of beans and full of like my son has adhd and he babbles he makes noise all the time random exclamations he's a handful and he's he's hard work you know and he chews he chooses t-shirts and he chews things all the time because he's just absolutely constantly on the go and i used to do that as well i used to chew my t-shirts i used to make funny gurning faces and doing all that sort of stuff and that must have been an extra reason why he kind of took against me at the time that must have been um, quite difficult for me then but i had no i found it very very difficult to do anything anyway because of my adhd i um i've got no sticking power and uh, i lose interest in things very easily and that on top of that, <clears throat> pardon me, um, 
having this kind of chronic lack of kind of self-esteem and inability to make a choice uh, and just do something, you know. Some people, when they get hobbies, I, st- I just don't, I still don't understand it. It's like, I said, why do you, why do you do that? Why do you really enjoy doing that? And it's because people try something, they do it for a bit, they find it's good fun, and then they carry on doing it. They just carry on doing it for 10 years. They don't think about doing anything else, but I don't do that. If, you know, if I started playing the guitar, two weeks into playing the guitar, I think, why am I playing the guitar? Am I a guitar-playing guy? Is that the person that I am? Why am I doing this? Why, why haven't I chosen the drums to play? Maybe the drums are a better thing to play. Nobody, who plays the guitar? Let's try drums, you know, and then I'll lose interest in drums, and then it, that goes as well, you know. Or drawing, or I never give anything enough time because I've got so many reasons to stop doing things. And I don't have the self-esteem or self-worth to tell myself I'm doing okay at stuff and to tell myself I'm doing good enough. It must have been incredibly hard for me as a child, thinking back as an adult, to exist in, in that house and the amount of affection that I didn't get and the amount of uh, fear that was there. But also, my mother's not an affectionate person. My father is an aggressive person and, and literally would have directed direct aggression, to, aggression towards me. I don't know where you get self-esteem from in that environment. I don't know where it comes from. The model that you're supposed to kind of take it from is so screwed up and uh, so hateful um, that I didn't have any other good male role models, you know. I didn't have any. All of my teachers were female, apart from one who uh, I... Oh, should I say his name? I'll I'll, uh, I'll call (laughs) him a different name. Okay, this was years ago anyway. And, uh, you know, I thought he was my... first and only male teacher and I absolutely idolized him and uh, he went away so I had him for two years with one, a one-year gap in between he went away and then came back and then um, in the second week that he'd come back so I had him for a whole year then he was gone for a year and the next year in the first week that we were back at school I went back into his class and I was so excited and I was leaning back and wobbling on my chair because, you know, I had ADHD. And, but it was never diagnosed then. And um, my memory of him is he picked me up by the, he picked me up by the arm and, and threw me across the room into the door. And uh, it just came back and screamed and screamed in my face because I disrupted the lesson. And, uh, God, Jesus, God, you know... That must have been incredibly difficult for me to deal with at the time. And the first year that he was there, you know, my mother had sent him a letter at the end of the year saying how much I'd enjoyed it. And uh, he'd got this letter when when I was uh, away, when he was away from school. And uh, even then, he decided that one of his first actions was to fucking throw me across the room. And I found that just absolutely baffling, you know. I found it really, really difficult. So it was really hard at home, and uh, I had shit like that happening to me. And um, because I was quiet, 
I was picked on in school as well, and so it was, it was really so, hard. So sometimes, <clears throat> when you're discussing these things. You say it must have been difficult for me. Do you have issues where you kind of detach yourself from the feelings that were going on at that time? I can't. I I have very little memory, but there has been a constant narrative. Uh, we've discussed this from when I was tiny. I've listened to my sister talking about my father. And then eventually started, I joined in <laughs> talking about what, what an arsehole is. Um, but I have very little memory from that time. I just, I have feeling memories and, you know, I'm so full of self-doubt, I think, as well, like a lot of people who've grown up in those houses, who are, oh, yeah, I'm a kind person. I'm not necessarily a judgmental person. And um, I try and give my dad constant breaks, so... I don't see him for a while. I'll say, is it as bad? Is it as bad as I remember it was? Is, is he as shit as I remember him? And, you know, fortunately, and unfortunately, but fortunately, every time I see him, he reconfirms. <laughs> I mean, he's an arsehole now. So God knows what he was like when he was a 25-year-old. Because he's a, uh, yeah, so yeah, anyway. So before we kind of... Go mm. to uh, parts of when you're older. Mm. Uh, you know, this is kind of how you're forming now in in, mm. in these years of what's going to happen later. Are mm. you able to articulate uh, how your like your you know your sisters are doing or uh, how their self esteem and their issues are they are they having the same problems <clears throat> kind of going forward? Well, we've all had. Um... We've all had a lot of kind of problems, really, uh, our own our own problems. Uh, my oldest half-sister um, drinks too much and has always drank too much. I didn't go a day, I don't think, without a drink for about 25 years. Um, I would drink every day. Uh, my sister, who's six years older than me, um, drinks way too much as well we we we're um my that interestingly on the nature nurture thing my half sister is a different sort of person to me and my um full middle sister uh, she is different she's um she is a more uh, kind of closer to narcissistic, I suppose, in her um, kind of personality attributes than I am, and certainly my uh, other sister is. Um, we are a lot more questioning and kind of uh, we beat we beat ourselves up more. Uh, we kind of don't know. Um, who we are, I suppose. That's what you would say. Yeah, so you're, you're, yourself and your two sisters that you grew up with, you all mm -hmm. have identity issues. Yes. Yeah, we all have identity issues. And, my, my, sorry, yeah, continue? Sorry. Uh, my oldest sister, so the half-sister, is um, she – I don't know if she's a narcissist, but she has a very, very uh, strong uh, front – so she's a different person when she's drunk to when she's sober. And she is uh, a storyteller. 
So she retells the funny things she's done in her life all the time. Like she is constructing, almost like she's constantly telling herself she's all right. Uh, she has these, um, she goes on long kind of, always the same and always kind of, she's the hero of the story or the, the funny person in the story. Uh, the story's always about things that were just the most hilarious things that ever happened. Usually she instigated them. And uh, it used to be, when I was younger, it used to be great because she's full of life and full of kind of fun and um, outrageous. She's quite an outrageous person. You know, she's always up for a drink and a good time. Uh, but the older she's got, it's, um, and the more I've kind of realised that, it's a face and that's not the person that she is. And she does actively construct this every single day. And behind that, there is a emptiness, you know, she, she doesn't know who she is. She has no personality unless she is actively building it. And that is very similar to my father. Um, but in a different way, she's not in any way cruel. She's not in any way, um, kind of, uh, heartless, um, she does make an overt thing of being caring, though, which is interesting. So it's almost a flip side. She will be the first person to, she'll buy the biggest presents for everybody. She will um, kind of make a big show of being incredibly kind. And um, that's the person that she wants to be. Sometimes you kind of see that she, that's her creation, you know. And how about your middle? Um, she is, um, a bit more like me, a lot more like me, uh, but much more driven to do things. She doesn't have ADHD and she doesn't have, once she gets her mindset on something, she will see it through to the end. Um, she's just, uh, she became a nurse age 50. We trained. She went and did a, they wouldn't let her go onto the university course. She wanted to do it in a year, pardon me, but she, um, they wouldn't let her do it without uh, a pre-university course that she had to complete in a year. And she did it in a couple of months, you know. She just went in and did all of the work. She just wrote it, aced it, and they let her on in the September let onto the course. So in the, in the space of about 15 months, she'd done full nurse. Was it, or was it two years? I can't remember. Anyway, she would, she had just, she did it in this incredibly short period of time and she aced it. Uh, I'm not like that at all, but she's, um, but she also has problems with, she gets, she will get bored of that, I think. And she'll decide that that's not the thing she wants to be. And she'll go and try and do something else. And there's been a thousand things like that in her life. She lived in the Caribbean for a long time because uh, uh, she kind of ran away a bit and kind of left England and needed to go and have a big adventure somewhere. And then when she moved back, she stayed here for a year and then moved to the, uh, live in the Med on an island. Um, she lived there for eight years or nine years. Um, kind of, it's a kind of a running away narrative, I suppose. So, you, so yeah. I mean, we, we could probably go into the later years mm. of your high school and discuss mm. all the other kind of extra yeah. things that would have happened. But it seems mm -hmm. it's best probably right here to, yeah. uh, I guess, now discuss mm -hmm. your uh, adopted out sister 
as far yeah. as you know because we were discussing your your all of your issues so mm-hmm. um you know when you're um 42 years old yeah um you get a a phone call from your yeah. middle sister that's right yeah and she said yeah somebody has got in contact with me on facebook and she is um saying that she's might be related to us and um could this possibly be true uh take a look take a look at her facebook profile um so we both had a look together we were on the phone and it was instantly i mean it was just there's no there's no way she was telling the truth you know um but when you're 42 and that happens and uh, it was just unreal it's not something that happens. You know, it happens that people discover they've had, their parents had had children from previous marriages that kind of turn up. Um, but it's very, very unusual that a full sister, um, especially one who is kind of slots in the middle, turns up. Uh, they're usually older, aren't they? Uh, by significant amount. And it's, um, a, it's unusual because your uh, eldest half-sister, mm-hmm. who was around at the time, yeah. had no idea. No idea at all. Yeah. N- neither of us had, none of us had any idea at all. And um, we uh, saw her picture. She was so obviously like my middle sister. I mean, she just is I- virtually identical. They are so, so similar in face. And they would have been if they'd have grown up together three years apart. So they would have been, you know, compadres, they would have been friends uh, or not, but would have been very close, whether um, best friends or best enemies. I don't know how that works with close siblings. But um, and then she uh, we uh, we confronted my parents. I didn't confront my parents. My middle sister did and said, uh, is this true? And my mother denied it to start with. She said, no, it's not true. And then when it very, very quickly in the phone call, I think, became clear that there was no way she was going to get out of it, she just went very quiet on the phone and then eventually said, yes, it is true. Um, But uh, dealt with it in just the worst way they both dealt with it very very badly uh, so we said were you ever going to tell us that she was uh, a, a, this person existed and they both said just straight out no we were never going to tell you didn't think we needed to tell you it's not something it's not none of your business basically is what they said um, which fits perfectly because you know the family revolves around my father um, always has and it's um, my mother and my father on one side and the children on the other side it, it's not they're not at the top and we are underneath them they're they are separated from us <laughs> and you know well i suppose my mother and the kids orbit, orbit the dad orbit my father but my mum and dad are a closed unit and uh, we all were encouraged to get out of the house as quickly as possible when we were kids we were all um, very much made to feel that we were a burden on my dad and what he wanted to do with his life was um, being um, stymied by our existence, basically. And uh, that sounds like I'm overstating it, but I'm really not. He, he is um, 
he made it very, very clear that <clears throat> that it was something that was uh, stopping him being the wonderful, successful person that he inevitably should have been was having us around. Um, and anyway, so when she came back onto the scene, the adopted uh, out sister, um, it was obviously an incredibly hard situation for them to deal with um, because so they went into this big uh, dial, uh, narrative about how they had every year on her birthday we thought about her and wondered what she's doing. You know, we've always worried that she was, um, you know, whether she was alive and if she'd had a good life. And and then this woman turns up, <laughs> this grown woman, and they don't really want much to do with their own children. And now they've got, now they've got one that got away has come back. And of course, my dad is terrified that this person wants something from him that he's incapable of giving anybody you know he's got no he's got nothing to give anybody else apart from himself he's just a fundamentally selfish human being and uh so you know eventually um we care they uh she came over and saw them and um i asked her what it was like meeting them for the first time and all that sort of stuff. And she said it was very emotional meeting my mother and, and my mum was very nervous about seeing her. But then she said, my father just talked about himself for an hour. <laughs> so she walked into the room, this baby that he'd given up and uh, this 50 something year old baby had just walked in and sat down in front of him. And instead of asking her about her life, he just talked about himself and how great he is all the things he's done and how much money he's made and all of those sort of things. And again, that sounds like I'm overstating it, but I'm not. That's literally what he would have done. He would have sat there and said, you know, I'm a very successful person. I've managed to make a lot of cash in my life. You know, this sort of, oh, Jesus. But, yeah, so there was that. And then both of them don't feel like they owe us anything, any explanation, any kind of... um you know, nothing, no apology. I mean, I don't want an apology from them, but we understand. They keep trying to turn it back to the fact that it was so difficult for them when they were, they were teenagers and saying, you, just, you kids just don't understand how hard it was. And we keep saying to them, there is no blame. We, we all totally understand that it was very, very difficult for you then. And uh, we, we don't blame you at all for, for that. It's a completely reasonable thing to have done if you were under pressure, you know, completely different times, uh, the social pressure must have been enormous. We're empathetic human beings and we understand that. And no matter how much we say it, they keep bringing it back to that because they can't, especially my dad, he can't imagine that he's got anything else to, to do apart from to kind of, um, that's the only thing that he can think that he did in this entire situation that's, that needs apologizing for. He doesn't owe us an explanation. He doesn't owe us anything because that is how he perceives us and his kids. You know, he's he would never sit down and, and kind of say, if you've got questions about this or attempt some sort of healing or all of that thing would be utterly alien to him. He just would never do it. And in fact, the opposite is true. In the time that he came to see me and we sat down and talked about this for an hour or two hours in the pub, 
he was actively antagonistic towards me, um, kind of saying, what do you want me to say? Uh, you know, uh, you don't know how difficult it is for me. And just didn't, basically didn't let me say anything. The moment I, I, he got uncomfortable with the things that I was saying and started to kind of suggest to him that he might want to talk more openly to me, he starts getting aggressive and angry. So and I, I've come to totally accept that now. I think I accepted that in my 20s, that he is, I'm never going to get anything from him. And um, that's one thing that this whole situation and having a father like him has done as... Um, I think I am. Um, I've spent my life self-analyzing, and um, I think I've done quite a good, relatively good job at it. Really, you've done a very good job. I think uh, I've read a lot, read a lot of stuff, and um, been through a lot of shit. You know, I've been. I was depressed for many years, and I was kind of on welfare for a long, <laughs> for a long time. Uh, and I never, even though I'm probably am an alcoholic, I'm a. I never. You know, I, I don't drink that much anymore. And I managed to pull it back. And I think a lot of people, I was listening to Pierre on one of your older podcasts, and, and he said something about drugs being, a, you know, lots of people in my, and I've always thought this, you know, I'm, I am such a, in so many ways, so utterly useless. You know, I've, I am, I have a learned helplessness, like you said to Pierre. Uh, and also I, um, neurotic i'm utterly introspective uh i am totally avoidant i'm avoidant 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 of doing anything you know it takes me uh, i mean just to ridiculous extent i had to change the settings on the boiler a couple of years ago uh, i had to set the timer so that it came on at certain times it took me a year to do it <laughs> it's ridiculous even saying it I used to sit there, it just, I don't know. But if it involves people, if it involves going up to somebody, any situation that might involve um, conflict, judgment, um, hierarchy, where somebody is above me, so anything that involves any sort of fucking work, basically, Anything that involves, um, I used to driving. It took, I passed my driving test in my 30s, my early 30s. I didn't drive for 10 years. And I, was utterly, I used to have panic attacks in the car. And I realized eventually it was, wasn't to do with the act of driving, although I do have ADHD and I find it difficult. I get kind of concentration is hard for me, but not that hard. And um, I realized it was because I was terrified of breaking down and blocking the road <laughs> and having people be angry with me who were behind me and having to ask for help of people to push the car off the road. What would happen if a tire burst and um, I crashed in someone's house? They'd be so angry with me. What would happen if the car broke down in the middle of the road and uh, I had 30 cars behind me all honking their horns? Jesus Christ, what would I do? Literally, that's what I was frightened of, you know. It's um, it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. So while you're dealing with all these things, still, I just want to go back to mm. your uh, sister, mm. your your adopted sister, for one second. Yeah. You know, yeah, because yeah. you know when you spoke Sorry. to her, and you know you've now known her for three years, not well. Yeah. I mean, you don't have that not much well. communication no. uh, with her. 
But, you know, from your perspective, how is her life in comparison to you and the siblings that you grew up with? Well, she, I think from what I know and from what I can kind of intuit from speaking to her and um, talking to her on the phone and stuff. And also I have said, we went to Amsterdam for, for a while together. Um, all of the sisters, uh, we went and spent uh, three nights there. And uh, she seems she's successful. She's single-minded. Uh, these are things that I can definitely say about her, I think. Um, she's done the same thing for a long time. So she's worked in the same profession from her 20s. Uh, she has – one thing she has done is moved, you know, which is a big thing that we kind of kind of have done. She ran away from England and she lives in Canada. Um, she is uh, very well-known in her field, I think. I think I could say that. And is very um, kind of active in engaging with people and – getting herself out there. I think she knows her mind. She's very able to say no to people. I think she is, um, she, one thing that we definitely have learned to do from my father, a lot of people with narcissistic parents say that as children, they were kind of forced to, or not necessarily forced, but they felt the urge to perform and be the best at things like my sister probably did when she was young. You know, she rejected that when she was 15, 16, uh, when she kind of realized that it was for the birds. It wasn't going to get her anywhere with her dad, I suppose. Uh, but one thing that we, we never, I never did that. I never, ever tried to perform and be great because I don't think I ever wanted, to, I can't remember ever wanting his praise and, and wanting to be in his shining you know, have him shine his light on me. But one thing that always used to uh, help to kind of get rid of his rage and calmed him down used to be making him laugh. So one thing that we did in our family was laugh all the time. So from an external point of view, my dad is very was is is very intelligent man. You know, he's which is a total paradox he is incredibly well read i mean he's he's ill-educated sounds like i'm putting him down but i don't i don't want to do that he's he 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 didn't have a good good education at all he left school at 14 but he's an intelligent person he reads incredibly widely uh fiction and non-fiction as well um and also he is he's a member of mensa he does the crossword, the very hard crossword in this country. The, the, is, is it very hard? It's, it's a cryptic crossword anyway. The Times crossword every Sunday. Does it every Sunday. He's incredibly proud that he can do it. So he'll obviously incredibly demonstrative that he's um, he's done it. Um, but one thing that is guaranteed is making him laugh. So our house was filled with jokes, wordplay, puns. A stupid jokes, fart jokes, any sort of jokes. Um, and that was the currency of the house, you know. And that was how we had any sort of bonding together was um, with, with him, especially, was in the in a kind of love of, of jokes and humour. We used to watch comedy programmes together all the time. Um, but it also, 
led to kind of a um, situation in which it was just extraordinary that we would make jokes about everything, you know, because he's got no empathy. Everything is fair game. So we were never serious. And jokes are constantly used in our house to deflect from uh, when situations called for for empathy and uh, kindness and love and cuddles and hugs and um, being close to your kids, it would be replaced with wry jokes and um, kind of <sighs> deflection using humor, I suppose. Anyway, we've lost our train of thought now, Brandon. Well, let's move into then now that you are a dad. Oh, yeah. And so you're a dad now. You have your own children. Yes, I've and, got two kids. And, you know, everyone who's listening uh, should know that you still speak to your dad. You still see yeah. your dad. You still see yes. your, your mom. So yep. let's talk about, like, how you started to parent yourself, the things you started to notice and, and mm-hmm. uh, about that, about yourself, and then yeah. how you deal with your dad going forward and how they interact, your, your children interact with him. Yeah. Well, before I had kids, I, I, I saw my parents less and less and less and less and less. So when I left home when I was 18, I didn't see them for, I saw them twice in two years. So I was kind of thrown out of home at 18 and uh, I had to find something to do. Uh, but I, I saw them twice and that was very, that was Absolutely fine with them. My mother and father never phoned me. I never phoned them. It was, uh, that was just basically how it appeared that they wanted it to be. I'm sure my mother didn't want that, but um, it must have been hard for her. And she used to come and see me and give me 20 pound notes. And she still does it to this day. I'm 45 years old. She will give me money uh, to buy things like uh, for the kids, for the grandchildren. And she will slip it to me like she's giving me a tip so that he doesn't see. Or she'll wait until he's got in the car and she'll come back and she'll do it. Because if she sees him, if he sees her giving me money, she'll get shit. So she can't even show that affection for for us even now, which is just so fucking tragic. And it's just... Anyway, um, but when my own children... So I didn't see them for for a long time. It was kind of getting less and less and less. And I had a couple of gigantic blow-ups with my dad. I mean, just, I'm the sort of person that keeps it in, keeps it in, keeps it in. I'll take take it on the chin, take it on the chin, and then suddenly something will happen. It's usually when my father is talking crap and I'm sitting there listening to him self-aggrandizing and saying how great he is. But then he will change tack and he will attempt to elicit from me sympathy about how hard done by he is. And that is generally the trigger for me. So I will be sitting there listening to him for hours talking about himself and saying how great he is. But then suddenly he will say something like, um, I don't know, I can't give you an example. But he'll want me to say, it, a moment will come in the conversation where I, I'm expected to say, yes, you're really great, Dad. You really had a hard time there. I just can't do it. And usually, at the, and it has happened twice, that those mo- usually with drink, when I've been drinking. But usually at those moments, it just 
goes. I mean, you can't imagine just huge. I've almost had both times we've been pulled apart by my mother. Uh, fist fights, almost, almost fist fights. And just the most incredible rage. But the last time, you know, he's quite an old guy now. <laughs> he was, I think he was 70 at the time. And uh, I don't know if I, your listeners will kind of appreciate it, but the rage that is inside me is just gigantic. And that comes from somewhere that is not in my conscious mind. It is somewhere very, very, very deep inside me that I've kind of swallowed down. And it is just so powerful, terrifyingly powerful. And, you know, anyway, my, but when my children were born, I was forced into a situation. I never actively, actively avoided them, but it, it just so happened that they didn't particularly want to see me. Um, because my dad doesn't want to, so my mother doesn't, if you know what I mean. My dad doesn't care, so my my mother is forced into a situation where she doesn't care. But now that they've got grandchildren, there's an, now an opportunity for I've got I've got to make them avail, the kids available to to see him, especially for my mother's sake. And uh, a lot of people say that when you have children, you realise how hard it was for your own parents and you have sympathy for them. And a complete, complete and utter fucking opposite thing has happened to me. Completely and utterly the opposite. When I had kids, I realised how appallingly bad a father my father was and how relatively easy it is as a half-functioning human being to give your child affection, to care about what they do on a day-to-day basis, to love them, to tell you you love them, to, to cuddle them, to attempt to feel guilty when you when you spend, when you um, you're not spending enough time with them. To I constantly think of his welfare and and my daughter's welfare, and I worry about what they're going to do when they grow up. I worry about the people that they're going to be. I worry whether my son is going to be you know not less, not successful but happy. All of these things every single day they go through my mind, and having. When he was born nine years ago, over time, of course, I realized none of that was there when I was a child. Absolutely none of it was there. And I got none of it from my own father. No affection, no cuddles, no hugs. I got aggression and violent rage and never, ever, ever any sort of show of love that wasn't related to him he would say that some, I'd done something good if it made him look good if he and, and he still does that to this day now the only things you get he constantly repeats he, you can see him thinking about things that he did and then he will ask me questions about the thing that he did in order to get me to say that he was great when he did it so he built me a bed once when I was about 16 he built me a bunk bed in the basement of the house that we lived in. And he probably mentioned about 500 times that bunk bed. And he will say, do you remember that bunk bed that I built you when you were 16? That was a great bed, wasn't it? You really liked that bed, didn't you? And he's just wants me to go, yeah, dad, that was great. Thank you for building that bed for me. It was a brilliant thing that you did there. And of course, that's, you know, that's what I do. And my house. And when we moved to when he moved me to Wales when I was eleven, when I moved there with him, that was a train that died. But he kind of we arrived in Wales at um, the day before I started school, 
and he, in the rain, in the dark, it was night time, went to bed in the house. I'd never been in the house before in my life. He'd bought the house. First time I'd ever been in there was the Sunday before school started on the Monday. Now I got up in the morning at 7 a.m. He gave me my school uniform, pushed me out the door. I got on the bus and went to school in a completely different country, essentially. No built, nothing, no prep. Didn't know where I was going. Uh, but anyway, he said, um, he said to me that, uh, yeah, he said, I hated it. And I hated every moment of it for the first four years I was there. I resented being there. I hated living with him. My mother eventually arrived about a year and a half later. But I spent a year and a half living with him in this, in literally in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness in Wales, in a village. And he, um, he constantly says to me, because he thinks of that time of his life favorably and he knows how much i hate it it gives him uh, a bad feeling when he thinks about it because it doesn't work with his idea of what he did at that time that i didn't like it so he's probably said to me ten thousand times you loved it in wales didn't you didn't you love it you absolutely loved it when you moved there you loved it didn't you and he's just confirming it for his own his own kind of he doesn't care that I loved it or not, you know. He at least just doesn't care. He wants me to say, yes, I loved it, Dad. You, you were great. You're great. What a great person you are doing that massive thing that nobody else would have done, moving their child. I don't do it, of course. I, say, I, don't, I, I don't give it to him. But then he just forgets. He won't. And they'll ask me again the next time I see him. He's got the same about five questions that he asked me, which must be moments in my life that he struggles with, you know. But anyway, my kids... Uh, it is very difficult because he craves their attention in the way that he seeing him with them, my children, is what it must have been like for me as a child. And it's very obvious how difficult it would have been. And it gives me a, a kind of insight into the past, really. And he doesn't allow them any room. Uh, he isn't. He's only openly affectionate in ways that he can kind of handle, which is kind of rough play. So he'll wind them up and wrestle uh, for maybe two or three minutes, but then gets bored like a, like a seven-year-old himself would, decides to read the paper, will pick up the paper. And the kids, of course, have been wound up, and they're not going to calm down for another 40 minutes. Um, but then he gets annoyed with them even though he's just wound them up to the state of and my mum and then me and whoever else is there because we are we have been programmed over the years to fear his rage and fear his aggression fear his kind of irritation we then have to move the children out of the room and out of his space and even if he's not seen them for six months the same thing will happen every time he gets bored within about 20 minutes of them and uh, when he realizes that they can't give him what he wants, yeah, it's uh, he will have an idealized view. Sorry, I'm touching my ear thing. I hope it's okay. Um, he has an idealized view of what they're going to be like when they come through the door. Granddad, granddad, we love you. You're the best, granddad. And when they don't do it, or when they go to my mother first, you can see him visibly bristle with that. And uh, so it's really, really hard. It's incredibly difficult to be in a small... They live in a flat, in a tiny space. And, uh, and I've got... My son has ADHD and my daughter is an absolute 
dynamo. She will just keep moving for hours. And um, to be in that tiny space with them and see him visibly irritated is incredibly triggering for me. <laughs> I find it very, very difficult. And I'm sorry, yeah. Oh, no. So I really want to ask you, So you know, you're getting triggered in those situations. You have your kids. Mm. I've never uh, talked to you about your wife, mm. um, even in our, in our, our pre-call. So yeah. when it comes to your wife, uh, how does your uh, wife – first of all, you got married. And, yeah. yeah. You know. oh, Jesus Christ, Jim. That is the – That's the, my children are, without a shadow of a doubt, the single most incredible thing. that I, If you'd have told me that I would have been able to get married and have kids when I was in, in my 20s or teens, I would have just laughed at you. I would never have thought it was going to happen. Yeah, so how does someone who has very low self-esteem and all these mm. issues get into a healthy relationship with someone um, which, you know, for the most part, might have seemed impossible? Uh, how does that happen, and how uh, is your relationship with your wife? It's okay. It's good. It's good. She's very um, different from me, and I think that's why it works. Uh, she... Um, is very understanding. Um, she is very tolerant of my parents. You know, what a lot of people do when you talk to them, I've had this problem for a long time. When you, I've always assumed, like I said earlier, I assumed that everybody's parents weren't like mine, but I thought that everybody had problems with their parents or spoke about their parents in, in uh, certain ways. And um, I can't tell you the amount of times that I've said to people, oh, God, I hate my dad. I, ha I hate my father. I, you know, I, I actually dislike him. He's not a nice man. People are shocked. You know, they, don't, they, don't, they don't have the, the headspace to deal with it because it's, it's out of – often people just don't get it. They think you can't mean that because they think the only thing that they think of when they think of their, their parents are their own mum and dad who, despite their faults and despite them being irritating old right-wing stick-in-the-muds, they are generally loving. That's a bit weird, but, you know, they have an idea about their parents that they generally love them and they're okay. But, but like, when I said to him, started talking about this to my wife, I think she, she just thought I was a bit loopy, you know. Not, like, but when she met them, and eventually she kind of realized how it is intolerable and it's very, very, very difficult for me. And, um, and he, he comes around. He'll never come around for more than the, him and my mum will come around for more than a couple of days. Uh, I, I said this to you before, I think, Rana, but she, can, she can't go anywhere on her own. She can't see the grandchildren on her own without him. And he won't let her, he won't let her come and see us without, without him because the thought of her... Being anywhere without him is—it uh, just won't happen. He, he doesn't allow it. If he goes away, which he does frequently, not frequently, about once a year, he'll go away for a few weeks um, on his own. He can go away on his own, but she can't. Um, he'll leave. She, then she can come, and I have to do a surreptitious phone call to her, and then she can come down for two or three days. My mum can come down for two or three days on her own, um, but otherwise, it's impossible because he has her on a leash, you know, and even to see her own grandchildren. And he, he said to her, um, it's odd for a grandmother to want to see her grandchildren on their own. 
on her own. It's odd. That's a strange thing to want. And um, that's the kind of gaslighting shit she's been dealing with for 50 years. And um, she's kind of down the rabbit hole now <clears throat> a bit as well. She doesn't see it anymore. And uh, it's infuriating, but she doesn't think it is strange. That, and also what happened, one other thing I wanted to say about this before I, I talk about something else. The um, If I, I phoned her the other day, um, I can't phone her phone because if he sees that I phoned her, um, that's not good. That is a, a kind of, you know, he will he will see that and that, and there'll be some sort of pushback from him um, because of the jealousy that we are favouring her over him. Or and um, what oft frequently happens is I will phone my mother; she won't pick up, and then my dad will phone me about two minutes later. And I'll just have a conversation with him. So he will, he will, he will snipe that time, take that time, nick it from um, from her, and have absolutely no problem with doing that. He thinks he doesn't even think twice about doing that. So even though I phone my mother, he is almost saying in those conversations, "I know what you're doing." He doesn't actually say, it, of course, but by phoning me, he's kind of indicating, "You phoned your mother. I'm phoning you." What are you doing? Don't think it. And it, she will frequently, what she used to do as well, is she used to, um, when I phoned her, or when anybody phoned her, he would pick up the other phone. He would walk upstairs and pick up the phone in the upstairs bedroom. So you could, I could never speak to my mother on her own, ever. It was always a dual conversation or nothing, because you just totally police what was being said. And uh, that happened for many years. He does it less now, but he still does it occasionally. And my mum is in such a, a place now in her relationship with him that what she sometimes does when he's in the room is she just puts it on speakerphone. But even if you want to have a private conversation with her, because it's intolerable her, for her to sit there um, with him glaring at her or giving her the evil eye. <laughs> so for you going forward from you know this point out mm. you're still seeing your family yeah and yeah. uh what is what are the things that you want to work on yourself um kind of going forward as far as you know uh self-worth uh learned helplessness and things along those lines or other things that we didn't touch upon oh it's, it's very very hard i think that the realization I've struggled my entire life with, with so many things. Um, and getting an ADHD diagnosis really, really helped me about two years ago. That, that was one part of the puzzle, yeah, um, to do with the, just the difficulties that I had in school, um, why my kind of educational path collapsed so readily, um, when I was 16, 17, um, I eventually go, go to university and get a degree, but it took a long time. It took two failed. I had to do what's called an access course, which is, I suppose it's like a, an access to university course, which you, you probably have in there as well. I did two. I failed the first one and then um, eventually did the second one. But I didn't fail it because I couldn't do the work. I, failed, uh, I didn't fail it because I didn't understand the work. I failed it because I, I just couldn't do it. I I struggle to write essays. It's one of the hardest things I, I, I do. Um, but what 
what I've always had and has always been under the surface with me from since I was a very small child was a sense that my father was full of shit and that has kept me kind of sane because I think that I always knew that in some small way that I was right. He never managed to kind of get in there with me, um, which is good. But finding out about narcissism and finding out about the because what I've always thought is that he is an eight-year-old boy in a man's body because of the things that happened to him when he was a child. But what I've never, that's never been good enough for me because it's not a proper explanation. And finding out about narcissism and how, inc- I mean, it just fits like a glove. It's just everything. It just so explains him. has been It's been huge for me. It really has. It's just, honestly... Not in the con- in my conscious mind, but in my unconscious, something has changed that I have not been able to change for my entire life. It's given me an explanation, and I think what's happened is it's given me an opportunity to stop beating myself up because finally, it something is somebody has said, well, not somebody, but I found out that it's not your fault. All of the things that you think happened, happened. You're not nuts. You're not um, uh, being cruel to your father by labeling him and uh, seeing these things in him which don't exist. Um, You stop second-guessing myself so much, and it's kind of flipped it. I feel I called this when I was tiny. And I knew what he, I had the measure of the man from, for such a long time. It's given me a lot of, and I've always thought of myself as a very empathetic person and a very, I can, as I said before, I think I can read people very well. And I think that is due to my upbringing, you know, I've always been very cynical as well, which is another, in knowing that adults can say one thing, but mean something else or present as one way and be utterly repulsive behind closed doors, I've known since I was five or six years old. And uh, that's a very strange thing to know when you're a little child and to kind of understand. Uh, But in another way, it's very good for your kind of emotional intelligence, I suppose, support for your kind of core emotional intelligence. I think I'm very, very good at that. I understand people. I understand that people are flawed. I understand that... um, yeah, I understand people very well, I think. And uh, But going forwards, I think I'm going to get therapy. <laughs> That's the short answer. I'm going to try. I don't have the money, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try some way to get some sort of therapy. I don't know what kind yet, so we have to see. And as far as, you know, giving words of wisdom or advice for other people that are going through the same thing as you or have been through the same thing as you, what do you have to say to them? It would depend on the stage of life that you're in. For people that are listening to this who are adults, I would say you don't owe your parents anything if they've given you a bad time when you were a child. The bonds of love, which you think should exist and which you kind of 
yearn for and romanticize like we all do, they're never going to be there. And it sounds like, uh, I don't think, personally, you are chasing rainbows if you think that the person who has who has been kind of the centre of the neutron star dragging all of this kind of, in my family, is the, you know, the locus of all of this chaos with these kind of, we've all kind of orbited him our entire lives. If you think that's going to change, I, I don't think you can change a person like that. You will not, I don't think you will get what you want. You need to work on that is the fundamental thing that one has to learn and come to terms with and try to be at peace with is the fact that it's not you, it's them, and resentment is okay. You don't need to appease them. The things that you want are okay, and you don't need to be made to feel guilty. Don't try and seek love and, and the thing that was missing when you were a child, because down that road is it's that's a very very difficult road, and that is that will prevent you from making real progress, basically. And I think that's something that I realised relatively young. Um, and I think that helped me at the time, uh, basically, yeah. And keep going. Don't um, don't try not to try to believe that your story is 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 real and true because it is. It's most of the time it is. You are you are in the right, and parents can be arseholes and. Arseholes have children, <laughs> and you know the world is filled with so many unkind, selfish people that just when you have kids, it doesn't just suddenly appear. Compassion, understanding, love, the ability to love doesn't just suddenly be magically beamed into the heart of people because they have kids. Um, yeah. So it's not your fault. It's their fault. <laughs> that, that was my message. <laughs> well, Simon, you did it. You 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 know, you were really nervous to do this uh episode and you yeah. did it and you did a great job. And yes. so many people are gonna learn from your story. It was educational, it was emotional. And how are you feeling right now that it's we're almost done here? I can't remember anything that I said. <laughs> it's a good well guess what? Well, it was recorded, so you can listen oh, to good. it all you good. want. Good, good. Okay, good. Well I'm glad oh, good, 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 good. Wow. I mean there's a billion things I could have said. Um but it's um it's very, very good to have uh, to have come on and said it. Um, it's interesting because as soon as I heard a couple of them, I just I, I just thought I have to get in contact with you to get on because it was um, these sort of podcasts are um, are rare. These kind of uh, stories, and uh, it's one thing that I definitely tried to seek out and um, kind of came up blank a lot of the time. There's a lot of self help stuff out there which is um, good, but 
it's kind of like and there's also a lot of stuff which is not coming from kind of therapist led if you know what i mean mm-hmm. rather than people just talking and telling their story and um this is much better it's much better to, for people to tell their own stories this is how i see it rather than being constantly um there's a lot of ones which are kind of stop all the time where people go oh, this must have been you know it must have been incredibly hard for you and making taking people off track in order to kind of make them emote more than they should because it's your story you tell it it's um and that is very powerful because it's powerful for me to hear that so many other people have had the same experience as me and um yeah in their voice it's good i'm glad we're very glad i did it well i'm happy you did it and what other people don't know there's one thing we do share in common um which is i'm going to do some little joke here we do have the same hairstyle yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 and we have the same shaped head to, to a T. So I'm sure from the back, you wouldn't, you would think we might be the same person. Yes, but you're not my brother, are you, Brandon? Uh, I am in Canada. You never know. You never you know. So uh, I really, from the bottom of my heart, uh, thank you so much for being here today, Simon. It was a pleasure talking to you and getting to know you and your story. So from uh, once again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. You're welcome. And for everyone else who is listening, I hope you have a good night.